Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week chatting to Robert Thorogood. His newest novel is Death Comes to Marlowe. It's the second in the Marlowe Murder Club series, all about amateur sleuths who help solve mysteries in their quintessentially British town. Uh, It's being made into a TV series and he's got a lot of experience in that, which we'll chat through in a sec. Also, you can hear why he works in a pile of tat and why it's important to not trick yourself that you can't write. It gets in the way. But it is so hard not to, I mean, to sort of bluff and double bluff yourself into what you need in order to write. You know, you, you can easily sit down of a morning and trick yourself into not being able to write for eight hours. So that's what you're fighting against every day is this sort of fear that, oh God, is today the day that um, I, I just, it, the environment's not right or I'm not feeling right or I'm hungover or I don't have my special peppermint tea so that's why i try and give myself as few things as possible you know the room doesn't have to be tidy the desk doesn't have to be smart you know the computer doesn't have to be anything in particular because that i hope will allow me to write more frequently than not there is more with a brand new writer's routine and robert thorogood in this week's episode Welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Robert Thorogood. It's the show where we take a look inside an author's working day. Uh, My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. And this week's episode is sponsored by The Return of King Arthur. It's an Arthurian fantasy trilogy by Jacob Sanox. Three books in the series, The Ravenmaster's Revenge, Agravain's Escape and Tristan's Regret. These are a fascinating take on history novels, particularly the stories of King Arthur too. They are dual timeline stories, you see, working from 29 onwards in the, well, the present, and flashing back to the 5th century and other key historical moments. The first one's got me very excited. Take a listen. It's called The Raven Master's Revenge. King Arthur is back. But can he stop the Raven Master? In 2019, Merlin's wayward apprentice has escaped from the Tower of London with his raven familiars. And legend tells us after this that England will fall. So it's all down to King Arthur, who's not like the King Arthur you might have heard of. This one is a weary veteran of the English Civil War, Waterloo and the Somme. Can he stop the Raven Master exacting revenge? Are you here? It's such an interesting twist on historical novels, blending modern day fantasy with a touch of crime thriller and that historical fiction. 
And the research that goes into this must have been something to behold. The book was a semi-finalist in the self-published fantasy book-off competition, which is run to promote indie authors. And that's what I love about self-publishing. It gives these authors with incredible ideas a way to get their stuff out without the cutting and the snipping that goes with the, the gatekeeping of traditional publishing. If you love fantasy fiction, talking Tolkien, George R. R. Martin, with a sprinkling of crime in there like Lee Child and some classic historical fiction like Bernard Cornwell, I think you'll really enjoy these. And the series, The Return of King Arthur, is sponsoring the show this week. They're all by Jacob Sanox. You've got three in the series, The Raven Master's Revenge, Agravain's Escape and Tristan's Regret. If you do love these fantastical twists... On Tales That You Know, uh, have a look into this. You can get all copies online right now. Head to Amazon or you can get to Jacob's website too. Jacob Sanox, S-A-N-N-O-X.com, jacobsanox.com. That's where you can find out more about the return of King Arthur. Let's get to it this week then. We're chatting to Robert Thorogood, who is the creator of the Death in Paradise TV series. It's filming its 13th series right now. It's become an an institution on the BBC, one of the most popular programmes on British telly. It's all about detectives solving crime across the Caribbean. It's real feel-good telly with a mystery to work out in every episode. Really, what more can you want with that? He's also published a few novels for the TV show and recently has put the Marlowe Murder Club out there. Cozy crime about the town where he lives. And, and Marlowe is a very nice town, about 30 miles from London. It's on the River Thames. It is fancy. It's fantastic. And Robert wanted to write a novel about it and loves crime and mystery. So thought of a locked room story where only amateur sleuths could untangle what's really happened. The first one went down very well, as a lot of cosy crime does today. The newest novel in the series is Death Comes to Marlowe. It's out right now. And a TV series based on the novels is out soon too. So by listening and by loving the stories, you can get in kind of early with this. We discuss why his early failure still stays with him. Also why he starts early, as early time is bonus, free time. You can hear how he dealt with suddenly writing full time, All of the time, having eight hours in a day to do your words rather than squeezing it around different jobs. And uh, we run through why you should always serve dessert first. And we get into it, as we always do, with what Robert sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. When we first moved to Marley many years ago, we were so obsessed with trying to get here because of the schools, because it's a nice place to live, that I didn't notice I didn't have a study and we had a shed in the garden which was full of lawnmowers that we inherited and sort of old clobber of the lovely old couple used to live here. So for the first five or six years, so this would be seasons three through about eight of Death and Paradise, I did all of my writing in a really tatty shed which I'd sort of put some pine cladding up in and run a cable out somewhat illegally so there'd be power. But... Um, after about series eight, I was finally allowed to move into the house. And I now have a tiny room about the same size that is covered in books. There's a little sofa, very little sofa. Um, my son's fridge, toaster, kettle and printer from university because he's home for the summer. Uh, a printer, more books, um, some secateurs and gloves for cutting uh, back the hedge. I mean, it's tat. I, I work in... 
a pile of tat. That's basically my working environment. As I look at it, I'm thinking, yeah, this is just mess. Mess everywhere. And when I'm working hard, it's an absolute catastrophe. And then when I finish on a job and I've got some space in my life, I tidy it up and clean it. And it's this sort of catharsis of throwing stuff away, old papers, old rubbish, sorting out the books. And sort of when I start a new project, the room will be nice and tidy. But at the minute, we've just finished shooting the Marlow Murder Club three days ago. So it's currently, it looks like a bomb has gone off. So when you were finally able to carve out a space for yourself in your study, having written outside and no doubt every other place, what did you know you wanted to be in this area for you to write in? What were the, I guess, the must-haves that you needed? Well, interestingly, I've always tried not to have must-haves because when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was, and we're going to use the word wildly here, wildly unsuccessful. So um, the only places I could write were in coffee shops in a lunch break when I was working as a temporary secretary in London or in 40 minutes at sort of 6 a.m. before I had to get up to go off and be a temporary secretary. Um, And that was really, really tough. But the upside of having to be so (laughs) peripatetic, I suppose would be a polite way of putting it, is that I learned to write absolutely anywhere and everywhere and I've ever so slightly been, I was really taken, Stephen King and his book on writing, which is absolutely brilliant, except for his chapter on adverbs that completely freaked me out. But he talked about the time when he made loads of money and he did this big barn conversion so he could work in it. And he put an enormous desk in the middle of his room and he couldn't write anything because it was too grand. And I sort of, I'm a bit like that. So he moved back to under the stairs where he'd written everything else. So that's partly why I'm in a small office with tat everywhere, because there's a bit of me that goes, I don't want to get ideas above my station. I'm only a writer. Um, So, yeah, you sort of, it's better to feel like you're sort of doing guerrilla work than that it's all rather smart and wonderful, because then I feel too intimidated even to try. Uh, around you aside from the clutter and the books what is there that might be conducive to writing i'm talking about uh whiteboards or post-it notes notebooks with plot points on it well i've got my reference books i've got my sort of blackstones um you know police guides and things like that and a heap of reference books on murder mysteries i mean a ridiculously large amount of very old uh, cloth-backed, um, hard-backed books um, that I've collected over the years because obviously ev- everyone and anyone who's writing uh, murder mysteries is slightly obsessed with the genre. So my study is mostly reference books. I would have a whiteboard, but I haven't got space. And again, it seems a bit fancy, a whiteboard. Um so I, it really is. It's just me and, a, and it's the same Ikea desk for 50 quid that I got in my 20s. And um, the desk is not fit for purpose anymore. The legs wobble and I have to refix them every couple of months. But again, I'm suspicious about replacing the desk. This goes back to the Stephen King thing, because this is the desk that I had in the shed. This is the desk I had when I first started writing Death in Paradise. And although it's useless, if I replace it, what if I can't write anymore? Ludicrous, isn't it? Well, it, it is weird how 
and I've spoken to many writers who feel the same way, who don't want to get closed in by needing traps around them, by needing certain things, yet we do get bogged down by these strange superstitions. So it, it does make sense. Yeah, I, I remember when I, I used to write and smoke, and was one of the reasons I didn't want to give up smoking was, again, I thought, well, smoking is part of my writing. You know, can I actually write without a, a fag in my hand? And then you discover that you can. <laughs> but it is so hard not to, I mean, to sort of bluff and double bluff yourself into what you need in order to write. You know, you, you can easily sit down off a morning and trick yourself into not being able to write for eight hours. So that's what you're fighting against every day is this sort of fear that, oh, God, is today the day that um, I, I just, it, the environment's not right or I'm not feeling right or I'm hungover or I don't have my special peppermint tea so that's why i try and give myself a, a, as few things as possible you know it, the room doesn't have to be tidy the desk doesn't have to be smart you know the computer doesn't have to be anything in particular because that i hope will allow me to write more frequently than not you need something to write on though and we do get rather niche and some might say nerdy on the show what what, what do you um what do you write on what software do you use also very importantly what font do you choose Robert? Ah, ha, ha. well yes let's do fonts okay so i got an lc475 which was a very bad macintosh computer back in about 1993 and i've been on macs ever since um i loved the fact that Final Draft, which we use for screenwriting, wasn't available on PCs, that felt absolutely correct, and was really disappointed when they eventually made a version for Windows. Um, so I've always done Macs. When it comes to writing novels, I use Scrivener, which has a very steep learning curve, but is absolutely brilliant, except for the fact that I've now done, done, you don't do novels, I've written eight novels and I still don't know how to compile it at the end to export it into a document. And every year that I have to do it, I go, right, this year I'm going to learn how to do it. And I still don't know how to do it. And I end up having to do quite a lot of it manually. But Scrivener will allow you to do anything you want in the writing sphere, including index cards, because I don't have a whiteboard on the wall. I will sometimes use index cards to move around ideas on a sort of a virtual space, a virtual whiteboard. Um, so it's final draft for screenwriting, which is Courier 12 point. Um, and you're not allowed to not use Courier. It's the only font that's allowed, which um, does sound a bit batty. But it's one of those, you know, um, uh, what was that band that, would, that said as part of their riders they had to have a blue or a yellow or whatever, um, M&M in uh, their dressing room? Uh, it was all, yeah, it was almost, they didn't want it. It was to show that you've read the rider. Correct. Yeah. Exactly, and it's a bit like that in screenwriting with Courier uh, font, 12-point Courier. Obviously, it's a ludicrous rule, but it sort of exists slightly to just check that you have been paying attention to what the rules are. So if you send something in that's not Courier 12, it's just a, just a red flag that you've, you've not really, you don't care enough. I mean, funny enough, I used to read scripts for working title uh, in my 20s and a few other companies as well. And the really old, big writers quite often didn't use Courier 12 point, but of course they could because they were, you know, Terry Gilliam or whoever. Um, so that's fun. When I write in um, on, the, on the computer, I, to my shame, 
use Ariel. So this one I write my novels because, as we all know, Ariel was stolen from Helvetica because uh, Max had Helvetica. It's the most beautiful font there's ever been. And I can't remember the story. They either refused to license it to Windows or Windows refused to pay for it. But anyway, Max, for years and years and years, had the best screen font ever, the best printing font, which is Helvetica. And then evil Bill Gates, he's not evil at all, um, Bill Gates, no, not even Bill Gates, one of his team, um, designed a copycat of Helvetica, called it Ariel, and that took over the world. And I am ashamed to say that despite being a Mac fanboy my entire life, I now write in Ariel, which when that should be Helvetica. We should all change over to Helvetica. It's a much better font. So you want to do font chats, you better bring a gun because I'm bringing all of the weaponry to this chat. Well, yeah, I've done font chats many times and we've never had font history and font mythology. So I'm, <laughs> oh, well, that's my age. I'm very thankful for that. Not- you know, it was the same in the old... No, you've got me going there. In the old days on Macintoshes, we had old-style figures, old-style figures, which meant that the numbers, you know, like the seven, would drop below the line like it did in books in the olden days on, on fonts like Garamond and Georgia and things like that and I always used to make sure I, I only used fonts that drop below the line old style figures because that showed I was using a Macintosh rather than a PC and then PC started using old style figures if you want to have fun uh, go to it is Georgia I think um, on a PC or Mac and just look at the numbers one two three four five six seven and the seven drops down the six goes up and it's really pretty but now that PCs have got it I refuse to use old style figures because I am contrary <laughs> <laughs> we will get properly into the writing routine in just a tick. You you mentioned a second ago your wildly unsuccessful 20s and 30s, and it sounded like you had a few different jobs. Working as a temporary secretary is one of them. When you finally got some success with a very successful TV show, now the book series, how much did you embrace the change of life and the change of day that that allowed you? I only mention this because I sometimes authors will mention when they move from writing part-time in snips and snaps whenever they can make it to getting a full to writing full-time they immensely struggle with eight full hours of writing a day they don't know what to do how did you find it gosh that's a really it's quite the the most interesting question i've ever been asked because it it really gets to the heart of just how difficult things were so let me gloss some of this but um how difficult it was right so Whilst I was wildly unsuccessful, I used to get the odd moment where it looked like I was going to do okay. So my very, very first uh, script commission was for a feature film with a friend called Theo in 1999, sometime around then. So after having temped worked as a magician in, in Hamleys and Harrods and done all sorts of jobs, changed the batteries for the Saudi royal family, not all of them, but that's not all of them, uh, yes to all of the batteries, but no to all of the Saudi royal family. So just mad, mad jobs, dressed up as a bear to doorstep John Major in the 97 election. Um, that was that was an odd job. Um, I finally got a script commission with Theo, and we were able to stop doing our mad other jobs and be screenwriters for a few months. And that I was so happy to finally be allowed to write um, that I found it quite easy to do eight hours because I was so desperate to get on. However, at the end of that process, the film didn't get made, and before too long, I'm back to doing uh, temping as a secretary and all of these other mad jobs in between. Um, And then I got a script commission from Granada, and so I'm off 
doing the temping and now I'm back on being a writer. So what sort of happened was I spent sort of six months as a temp secretary and then three or four months as a writer and then back to being a temp secretary. So I'd always sort of come and gone between these two states. So when eventually I got um, was working on Death and Paradise, which was not greenlit at the time, I was just pitching it to Red Planet and they were taking it to the BBC and the BBC were interested. So they were asking for, a, first of all, a, like a pitch doc and then asking for a treatment, then eventually asking for a script. I was convinced, so I've been doing this now for best part of 10 years, that um, this would be another job where I would nearly set it up, we'd talk about a green light, and in a few months' time, I'd be back to head office at Debenhams uh, Women's Wear, which was a lovely job, which I adored enormously. Um, and they really looked after me very well. We had kids by this stage. Oh, God. So, you know, the pressure for earning money and being responsible and successful was even worse. And every Friday, they'd have a sample sale at Debenhams Women's Wear, and they'd let me go in early so I could get the free kids' clothes, baby clothes. I mean, they were just delightful. Anyway, the building has since been razed to the ground and doesn't even exist. So that's the that's what it's like getting older. They destroy the buildings in which you were once happy. So I was convinced that with Death and Paradise, I'd go back to being a, 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 you know, a jobbing secretary again soon enough. And that feeling of, I've got to go back to being a secretary, took so many years to leave me. And in fact, I would say to my wife, Katie, every year, uh, you know, but they get to a point like four or five months in. So this is like series three of Death and Paradise, series four even. Where I'd go, I don't think I'm going to have to be a secretary this year. You know, I think there's going to be enough money coming in. So it never, I mean, it's taken me a long, long time to accept that I am actually a full-time writer, like way too long. I mean, I've, so long, it's ridiculous. I don't think it now, as in I do know I'm not a secretary anymore. I am a writer, but it, that was hard. I mean, it was just weird. Uh, how long did it, again, I'm not prying too much here into, in, into how you live your life and spend your money, but uh, how long did it take you to allow yourself to live, uh, not luxuriously, but, but uh, allow, uh, allow yourself to, you know, appreciate that you are successful with some money coming in and you don't have to... Well, uh, we're going to go with one day because the year before Death and Paradise got made, I paid no tax. So I earned so little money that I didn't trouble the tax man. Um, I didn't reach a threshold above which you pay tax. So as soon as I got um, a script fee for Death and Paradise, which was enough in one fell swoop to put me into the very lowest tax bracket, I felt uh, so relieved and happy. I can't even begin to tell you. As far as sort of having... I don't know, feeling, um, having fun with money. No, that never happens. We've got children. <laughs> We've got to raise kids. We're in a cost of living crisis. Um, that, that just, that comes from such a high level of privilege. I feel that I carry the whiff of the bog of failure with me wherever I go in the sense that all of those years of having the door slammed in my face, I mean, that sounds um, rather pathetic, doesn't it? But all of those years of failing to get through the door, that's better. All of those years of telling Katie, it's going to be okay, I think I am making progress, and then we have another kid and another kid, and, you know, my father-in-law, on the day we got married, he said, um, I never wanted you to marry my daughter, but welcome to the family. You go, okay, fine. You know, so that 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 has echoed, or no, no, that that's, I do feel like I carry that whiff of, of unsuccess 
all of these years later. Um, and it's partly why I've worked so hard at doing both novels and TV shows is because I'm convinced that it's all going to end tomorrow. Uh, wow. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, ridiculous, isn't it? No. It's, Absolutely ridiculous. And I think that's what that's what drives, every, without getting too... Um, uh, you know a- another type of podcast that maybe deals with you know the success of ceos but that's what drives people right it's like it, it i think i think the second you do have time to sit around take stock and almost smell the roses you're kind of on a hiding to nothing really because there's no progress in that i mean they say don't they you know the, the greatest um uh, killer of, of inspiration and creativity is the pram in the hallway and I found it was the exact opposite. In fact, my success, and so far as we can use the word success, I'm not comfortable with that word anyway, but being able to pay tax, there we go, being able to pay tax, all came about once we started having kids because it, I found so impelled to try and be worth, you know, that they didn't ask to be born and they're having, you know, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to diss Greg's, I love Greg's, but, you know, a tea would be, you know, a Greg sausage roll and a shared tin of beans. And you'd go, well, that's all we can afford, you know. And I'm choosing to be this poor because I do have a degree. I'm not unemployable. You know, when I was a temporary secretary, one of the, you know, the words on the street were, were when you were with Office Angels, again, I'm sure don't exist anymore, you used to go to Oxford Street once a week and see what jobs were available, was become a legal secretary. Because if you became a legal secretary, you could earn £17 an hour, and I, as a bog-standard secretary, was earning £10 an hour. And I knew that if I ever got paid £17 an hour, I would be comfortable enough to not have the hunger I needed to be a writer. But at £10 an hour, I was so poor, I still had to make myself do the writing, if that makes any sense at all. No, it makes yeah, it makes, it, it makes perfect sense. Where did that... That that original drive then to very simply want to be a writer. Where where did that come from? I don't know. That's the weird one, isn't it? I think, if we're being entirely honest, there's an element of white male privilege kicking around in there, um, screaming, me, me, me. Um, uh, I had very successful friends. I went to Cambridge. So I sort of come from a culture where people aspire to be successful and your friends are successful. So it, it feels, you know, you can see it. And it feels like a viable route. Um, so, yeah, between – I've always wanted to write. You know, that's uh, this must be the case without every single writer. And lots of readers as well. You know, we all want to write quite often. So, and I always did write. And I wrote, you know, a novel when I was at university because I was so desperate to learn how to write. Um, and then I just thought – if I keep plugging away, because there were clues. I mean, this is the thing. There were, you know, I did sell a feature film in 2019 for the princely sum of £5,000 each. Theo got five grand, I got five grand. I say princely. It was princely. I was on, you know, eight, nine pounds an hour. Uh, so five grand suddenly arriving in a chunk was loads. Uh, it depends if I'm doing a TV show at the same time as a book, but the shape of the day is broadly the same. I can write up until about midday every day and it doesn't matter what time I get up I only seem to be able to create new things new words up until about midday so I tend to get up between 6 and 6 30 something like that because I've got to fit my writing day in um, and if I'm in the middle of a big 
load of work, you know, if I've got both a book and a TV show, and I will get up at 5, 5.30 or 4 or even 4.30 because I'm insane. But also um, there are fewer distractions at that time. You know, Twitter is only American Twitter. You've got no UK Twitter going on. You're not receiving any emails, anything like that. So, And I feel that I'm stealing a march because I said earlier that I can't have a grand desk you know, because I don't want to feel in any way that this is a grand pursuit. So I sort of think most people's working day starts at nine. So anything I write before 9am is free. There's no pressure on me. No one's expecting me to write. So I can do it without feeling completely frozen at the fear of having to write. So I'll just go, oh, I'll just knock off a few words. Uh, It's not even nine o'clock yet. This isn't even a working day. And I can get quite a lot done and I work very efficiently. Um, as I say, until about sort of midday-ish. And then I'll, I always, because I'm quite process-driven, will break for lunch at midday, generally. Um, and then in the afternoon, I do editing, which I can do in the afternoon. I, You know, the writing is writing and rewriting. The rewriting bit, which I love, it's one of my favourite bits. I mean, writing is hard and gruelling and lonely and you feel fraudulent every second of every moment that you're doing it. But the editing bit is actually really fun because you look at what you, what this person has written happens to be me in this, me in this instance, but there's these, these words on the page, and you try and make them better, and I love doing that. So the afternoon is enjoyable, and the morning I dread. No, nah, dread is too strong, but I, I, I fear the morning, and I, and I just hope every day. I mean, I'm doing it at the moment. I'm planning the new... Marlin Murder Club novel at the moment and it's just you just go oh, I need another motive here I need another red herring is this right and and you don't know the answers so every day you're sitting down going well I don't know and that's terrifying <laughs> but I did choose it so I'm not complaining but it, it is it's weird uh, what makes an efficient morning for you when you sit down four five six in the in the morning is there a plan for how much you need to get done through the day? Well, yeah. So on the novel, I know the delivery date. And one of the things you can do with Scrivener is um, you can put in the delivery date. You can set the days that you're working. Monday to Friday, I tend to work. Well, actually, I tend to work Monday to Saturday, but I pretend. Again, Saturdays, I do work, but I don't tell myself I have to. So it feels like I'm stealing a march on the Monday. Because, again, if I can start the Monday already having done Monday's work, because I secretly did it on Saturday, it feels less pressurized. I'm just, you know, the, the gymnastics, the mental hoops you jump through to try and trick yourself into not feeling too terrified to write. Um, but, but sort of generally, the, the morning kind of looks after itself because I do have energy and I've got some coffee and my back isn't hurting yet. And I'm, it's before 9am, so I sort of feel, you know, I can get going. Um, and weirdly, I write so much more in that first hour than the second, than in the third. That's why, that's why I stop by about 12. Not because I'm knackered or anything, because I'm not, because I'm going to go off and do editing next, but because each hour I get less creatively capable of producing words and I write fewer and fewer of them but as I was saying sorry in Scrivener you can actually divide the number of remaining days by your delivery date and so that's how many words I will write and if I do not feel inspiration it's normally about 700 words something like that I can feel comfortable with in a day if I'm not feeling inspiration I will hit those 700 words come hell or high water because I terrifyingly discovered many years ago there isn't the strongest relationship between feeling inspired 
and the quality of work that you can you produce. Because sometimes when you feel inspired, you write self-indulgent rubbish. Sometimes when you feel really tired and it's just not there, you can just suddenly surprise yourself and get in the flow and 10 minutes later have written a really good little chunk. So I will hit the word count and nothing will stop me. And I, and I will not go to bed until that word count is hit. If, even if I have to spend the day, you know, having sort of blood tests at the hospital, I'll come back and then do the word count. I'm rule. I have no free will. That's the other thing. I'm not allowed free will because if I had free will, I wouldn't do it. So, you know. You mentioned quality there. Um, on an average day, those 700 words are... Uh, uh, are you just keen to get anything out? Do they have to be the correct word? No, no, anything out. Do not, because I've, like, again, we get so, uh, it's really hard, isn't it? But, but when I talk to people who want to write and they talk about, you know, how hard it is, and I get it. I mean, all I've talked about is difficulty and hardness and, and my fear of failure and all of those things and that the words won't come today, all of that sort of thing. But you have to give yourself permission to fail. I can't remember who said it originally, but it's quite a well-known sort of saying that that first draft you should consider to be draft zero. It's not a draft. It's almost like a working document for you to work from. So I, I just think that this is what works for me. I'm not Paul Oster, who clearly writes a perfect sentence, then has a good old think, and then writes the next perfect sentence, or John McCarry similarly where you just go, there is such considered thought behind every sentence here. Or I'm reading, finally got around to reading The Goldfinch at the moment, and the same with Donna Tartt. You just go, I don't know how you do it. But I'm writing light-hearted murder mysteries, and they're supposed to be fun and um, frothy, and there's, there should be a flow to it all. So I think, you know, I just try and just write, and then when I go back and read it and go, oh, this is flying, this is lovely, or as is often the case, no, this is this is rubbish. I can rewrite it from scratch, but I don't feel stressed the second time round in draft one because draft zero exists. I fear all the time of missing deadlines. I fear that I, they, they pay you in advance. What a stupid system we have for publishing. They give you the money before you've done the work. I cannot think of another way of disincentivizing anyone to work if they said yeah deliver a novel and we'll pay you some money i'd go right i'm off to write a novel instead of which they go here have some money you spend the money and then you go i'm now going to write a novel for free <laughs> which of course is not the case you're not writing a novel for free you just spend the money doing things in the wrong order um on days when it is particularly tough and those 700 words are not coming out have you learned anything i mean you can't have cigarettes or much coffee anymore have you learned anything along the way that helps kind of grease the wheels yeah so a few tricks so there's a thing that you again you see i'm so weedy and pathetic there's a thing that used to be called mac freedom it's now called freedom because uh, you can get it from the pc as well where you can, you can turn off all of the internet, et cetera, et cetera, for a number of minutes. It's the Pomodoro technique, isn't it? And what I will do, if things, I mean, when things are really tough, I will set it for 20 minutes and I will, because I'll know roughly how long it takes to write 700 words. Um, I mean, ironically, it can take half an hour if you know what you're doing, but, you know, it can also take a whole day. Um, and I'll go, right, so today it's just not coming. Say I'm miserable. And you do feel miserable because you just feel that you can't do it, it isn't coming. And so I will go, right, 
I reckon I need to do this four times. I need four bursts of 20 minutes. That will take two hours. And and remember, I used to stand, not remember, I haven't told you. Um, I will now tell you, and in the future, could you be kind enough to remember, I used to work in men's accessories at Harrods where I stood on my feet, my hind legs, for three hours at a time, and these entitled arseholes would come and talk to me about how the belt I'd sold them wasn't working anymore, and I wasn't allowed to point out that was because they were too fat. So I can do boring, tough jobs. I think, right, in that world, where I used to be able to do that and can still do that, I can sit down and concentrate for 20 minutes. So I do... 20 minutes with everything turned off. And then for 10 minutes, I'm allowed to then play on the internet, go to Twitter, Instagram, all of those sorts of things. And you know, I have alarms set for this. We've got a, um, a countdown timer. That, this is when things are really hard. And then at the half past mark, I do another 20 minutes, and 10 minutes off. 20 minutes, 10, 20 minutes, 10. And then lo and behold, within two hours, I will at least have some hundred words, three or 400 words, let's say, at which point, the nearer I get to the end, the more I feel that it's an achievable task. I mean, particularly if it's 700, anything over 350 words, it feels easier because you're writing a word that's really taking you nearer to the end. So, so that sort of Pomodoro technique of 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off, or even just 20 minutes on, 40 minutes off. I mean, I don't do that. But, you know, any system where you've properly focused for 20 minutes, you will get there because it's only, you know, Books are just one word at a time. You just need to string enough of them together. I know this has always been slightly the case for you with Death in Paradise, but writing the novels and having the TV show out and doing, well, you know, making the TV show and, and having many other things on, how do you find your creative energy going? It must be tough to, to sacrifice the amount of brain space needed to flip between now I'm writing, now I need to deal with uh, publication stuff, now I need to help with a TV show, now I need to think about the future. Like, How do you grapple with that, all that change? <laughs> well, one thing, I don't think about the future. So that's one, that's one burden I don't have. Uh, all of the changes are actually quite fun because really your day-to-day life is lonely and boring and used to be involved. Yeah, I used to you know, live in a shed and now I live in a corner of the house. Um, so, you know, when you have to go off and say to do a podcast, you know, that's lovely. You know, here I am, we're talking at 11 a.m., so I was up early at 6, I've done a few hours' work, I've grappled with my book, and actually quite often, particularly when you're developing stories, the time you're not working on it is as important as the time when you are working on it because you need to let your subconscious choose. So I've got a very knotty problem with one of the characters, Toby, that I'm slightly stuck with at the moment. I don't quite know what his motive is. I've got a sense of what it could be, but is that a bit boring or a bit obvious? And so I got stuck, and then I'll talk to you for an hour, and during this time, my subconscious will be either forgetting about it or just, you know, just having a little worry at it. And then when I sit down after we've spoken, then maybe something will pop up. And if it doesn't, then maybe I'll go for a dog walk. You know, so all of these, not distractions, but tube journeys or train journeys or drives, they're all chances for your sort of subconscious to um, sort of think about things. And all of this sort of the differences between doing TV and books and doing publicity for telly and doing publicity for books, they're all, it's nice to get distracted from what you're doing because otherwise it would just feel like a very heavy sandwich, just writing words every day without, I, I'd never talk to anyone. You know, one of the amazing things of working on the TV show, although it was too distracting having them in Marlowe because I live in Marlowe, 
is that there's 70 people, all of whom I can go and chat to. That's amazing. I normally don't speak to anyone. Quite often when, you know, my wife comes home from work at tea time, she'll ask me how my day was. And when I speak, I can't. There's a frog in my throat because I've not spoken all day. So, yeah, the chance to get out is a wonderful distraction from the um, the day job of having to sit in silence typing away at a computer. Yeah, you know, what's glorious is I'm almost the reverse. So I do... Well, I do. So I do these podcasts. I present for two, well, two, three different radio stations every day. So um, when I come home of an evening and my girlfriend wants a chat and like the well is the well has run dry. I have no more. I have no more enthusiasm to give conversation. I apologize. I totally understand that because if I go for an important meeting, like with the channel or something, and you you're absolutely putting on your best energy and your best sentences. And I'll come home in the case and say, oh, God, how was the meeting? I'll go, can we talk about it tomorrow? It was fine. Can we talk about it tomorrow? I've got, I, don't, I can't do justice to your question because I've used up my creative ability for the day. And you feel sorry for children, right? The, the old, the age-old uh, th- uh, thing that we mock them for, how was your day at school? Yeah, it was fine. It's because they've had seven <laughs> hours of having to like concentrate and be this person. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, we all, once the well is dry, it's dry. Particularly, I'm 51, so when my energy levels go, there's no bounds. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. More with Robert in just a sec. This week we are supported by the brilliant historical fantasy series by Jacob Sanox, The Return of King Arthur. If you love historical fantasy fiction, uh, Tolkien, George R.R. R. Martin, with a sprinkling of crime like Lee Child in there and some classic history stuff like Bernard Cornwell, uh, I think you'll really enjoy these. You can get copies in all forms online right now. Head to Amazon or to Jacob's website, jacobsanox.com to find out more. It's The Return of King Arthur, three books in the series, The Raven Master's Revenge, Agravain's Escape, and Tristan's Regret. The series, The Return of King Arthur, is sponsoring the show this week. Uh, If you've written a book and you would like it to sponsor this show next week, 
You can do that by pledging and supporting at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It's not all you get. You get our eternal thanks. You get merch. There is even bonus content there too. If we have helped you out, if we have helped the way that you plan your day and tell stories with some of the fantastic authors that we've had on, you can help us carry on bringing you these chats with the greatest around as often as we can. To support and pledge to help the show doesn't require a lot, just a couple of dollars a month. Anything that you can send over goes an extraordinarily long way. To make that happen, it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Robert Thorogood chatting through his newest novel in the Marlowe Murder Club series. It's called Death Comes to Marlowe. In this half, we discuss why his novels need to be fun. He's writing mysteries, cosy crime. He doesn't want to get bogged down in thinking they need to be more than just giving a readers a good time. And it is really refreshing hearing an author speak so candidly with the knowledge of when his readers pick up his books. He's taken inspiration from Agatha Christie for it, actually. We chat that through. Uh, Also, why you should always serve dessert first. And we get back to it talking about the first novel in the series, The Marlowe Murder Club, and why he wanted to write a mystery about where he lives. I grew up reading Agatha Christie. And funny enough, she's not that much of a Loxroom doyen. She's much more of a poisoner and... You know, I mean, she's just a genius, so um, you don't really need to, we don't need to talk about that because everyone knows that. Um, but Locks and Mysteries have always been uh, something that I'm particularly obsessed with. When I wrote Death in Paradise, I came up with the first episode after I'd come up with the third episode because I knew that for my first episode, right, let me explain that, that's nonsense. I had an idea for a Death in Paradise episode and I put it, and I thought it was really good. I thought it'd be excellent, in fact. But I knew that it wasn't a first episode. A first episode had to be something special, and something special means a locked room mystery. So I, I bumped the idea that I had to episode three, and then um, episode two, I thought we really need to prove that this is the Caribbean, so we need to do a, a quintessentially Caribbean story. So that was what episode two was. But episode one had to be, in my mind, a locked room mystery. And um, when I left Death in Paradise to start working on The Marlowe Murder Club, um, the very first book of that, I couldn't do a locked room mystery because uh, the women hadn't met each other yet because I knew that these were going to be amateur sleuths. They were going to meet each other through the course of an investigation of a sequence of murders that happened in in Marlowe. But once they solved that, um, you know, once they'd caught the killer in book one, for book two, my thoughts immediately turned back to doing a locked room mystery because I just, I find the sort of the, the technical challenge of it, the magic trick of it, you know. So in Death Comes to Marlow, uh, a, a, a posh local guy called Sir Peter Bailey is found, um, somebody's pushed a bookcase onto him in effect and crushed him to death in his study. The window is locked, the door is locked, and the only key to the door is inside his pocket. So the question is, how did the killer manage to crush him to death and then get out of a locked room? Um, and I find that just delightful, you know, just as a as a uh, contract that you make with the reader where you go, okay, look, we're in quite a heightened world. Obviously, if I was going to kill Sir Peter Bailey, I would not do it inside a locked room. Although I do think with locked room mysteries, it's important to try to explain why it had to be done in this way. But let's see if I can smuggle the killer past you like Agatha Christie might. Oh no, like Agatha Christie always did and that I might try and aspire to do. Um, 
And so that's where it came from. You know, how could I do a Lockter and Mystery in Marlowe? What would that look like? And then once you start, once I start thinking like that, I'm thinking, well, I quite want it to be a country house murder because I think that would be fun. And then you start populating it with people who'd be in a country house and just sort of almost walking the cat backwards to where it starts, if you see what I mean. So I'm starting with the murder, which is a, uh, a murder in a locked room. So you've got to work out, you know, why is it locked? Who's the sort of person who would have a locked room? You know, which is the locked room? And so eventually you keep going backwards and backwards in time of the story till you get to the beginning. And then you try and play it through forwards and hope it makes any sense at all. But I sort of start with the murder and then try and work out why the murder would happen like that. I almost start with the magic trick, as it were. It, it, it sounds like these types of novels must have to be quite extensively plotted. How much do you know about everything you're writing before you start typing the first sentence? Uh, I know everything before I start typing. It, but not, not because I'm super organised. I'd love to be a lot more loosey-goosey because I think it makes the writing process more fun. But um, these sorts of stories are essentially a house of cards, aren't they? Because, as I say, you wouldn't kill like this. They're, they are entertainment. They're, they're entirely um, there to bring joy. And they're supposedly funny as well. You know, I try and write funny characters. You get up to funny scrapes and have funny reactions to it. So for me to have the freedom to write funnily and to try and be witty and to try and service my characters, I need to not think with my plot brain. So I do all of the plot first, um, and it'll be a 40-page prose document, one and a half spaced um, in Arial, as I was saying, 12 point, with very nice, proper page numbers. If I had one criticism of modern script editors and production companies as we move into 2023, 2024, is the youngsters coming through do not appreciate the importance of page numbering. And I, one of the things I do on any show that I work is get very boring and complain constantly that they won't put page numbers on their documents Maybe they've got really good printers, but I come from a world where printers are rubbish because I can't afford a good printer, and the paper spews out in any old order. Um, but yeah, I have an amazingly detailed um, uh, plot. Everything is worked out because then, when I come to writing it, I don't need to worry about what's going to happen next. I can just think, how would Judith react to this? You know, how would Beck, Susie, and Judith talk about this? And that means that the writing process, what fun there can be found in it, is fun through the character and the interactions, rather than going oh, where did they get this German Luger from? <laughs> yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, let's talk about genre very quickly, just because, so uh, the Marla Murder Club series is cosy crime, you'd have to say. I mean, that that's what... Yeah, no, not have to say we're going to own it. Yeah, perfect. We're fine with that. Let's do that. And it's a popular genre at the moment. How much did you think about that the genre you're writing in what needs to be in this genre before you started writing that's a good question uh, so what's really interesting about death in paradise no what's really interesting comma let me give an example that's a semicolon actually let me give an example of death in paradise um where uh we've been again working very hard on the plot trying to get this episode one this locked room mystery going as well as possible um, quite late in the day, before the shooting script, before we had the read-through uh, even, um, we went and had a meeting with our executive, Polly Hill, and she said, look, it's really fun, I'm enjoying it, but could you just add more fun to it? 
because I just think there's more that you could be doing which isn't plot-based. So that's when I went away and I had a think, and I came up with them having a police car with a side uh, car, because I thought every detective show has got an iconic form of transport, you know, whether it's Morse's Jaguar or, um, oh, what's his face, John Nettles in his beautiful red car on Bergerac, thank you. But, you know, that's just, that's just a given that you should have iconic transport. So I went off and, and, and came up with Iconic Transport. I thought they also have a really fun comedy sidekick. I thought, well, let's have a lizard. Let's have a lizard that lives in the house because that, that's just silly. And, and, and so that was sort of amazing to realize that sometimes you've just got to sort of let go of all of the, the not the seriousness, but the, the endeavor, which is to try and smuggle a killer past people and just try and embrace the fun of it because the genre is fun. You know, I, Agatha Christie's novels were 50 and a bit thousand words. These, these do not outstay their welcome. She knew, and she didn't do character descriptions, she barely described anything, because she knew that we weren't there for our, you know, Dickensian hit of understanding, gosh, this tiny character um, is so beautifully described, reminds me so much of so-and-so, um, we're just there to have fun. So that's that's the challenge, is you write it very slowly because it takes time to write, but it should be read reasonably breezily, you would hope. And we, we've spoken about you writing scripts and not just that, you reading scripts and then working on TV shows. I guess, and, and just from your answers, you know, you, you've, you've analysed to a degree other crime murder mystery stories that you've liked writing. I guess, what have you learned about writing murder mysteries and how they need to be from all your experience writing other stuff, reading other stuff? Well, I'm not going to tell you that, otherwise everyone else can do my job for me. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. No, um, it's always, well, the only thing that is, is useful, is, and it's a trite answer, really. It's not trite, it's just the one you expect. It's just always about characters. You know, you can plot all, if you, all you like, but if you aren't invested in the characters, then there is no story, because without characters, you have nothing, because you, you can't read a story in which you find the people to be tedious or boring, or um, you have no empathy with them, even the even come across the murderers you should have some empathy with them um but yes always there's a really good podcast i used to listen to called martini shots which was written by rob long who wrote cheers back in the day and uh, one of his pieces of advice which i've always tried to follow which is uh, serve dessert first uh, in other words you know when you go to a restaurant you know you have the starter which is you know a savory dish and we're waiting for the dessert but we have the start first and then we have the main course, but we're really waiting for the dessert. And then eventually you get to the dessert. And I found it really, really useful to sort of go, what's the, you know, because quite often when you write, you think, well, I've got to do this description, or I've got to fill, you know, I've got to do the right procedure to get from this point to that point. Sometimes I go, nah, you don't really. Just serve dessert first. Just do the next fun thing for the reader, because it's always about the reader, always about the, the viewer. What do they want to see next? Because it's not a real story, because it's in this heightened world where, you know, the police allow amateurs to get involved or, you know, we, we set a TV show on a Caribbean island to pretend there's no forensics and that all murderers will stand still for 10 minutes whilst you speechify to them about why they were the murderers. Already it's, it's not entirely real. We, we don't need to, you know, cross every I and dot every T of, um, of doing the forensics correctly, of doing the procedure correctly. So just... Always go for the next fun thing and hope there are enough 
fun things to sustain a story with those characters. That is something of what I've learned, I suppose, I think. That is it for this week's episode with Robert Thorogood. The Marlowe Murder Club Mysteries is a series of books. It's out right now. Um, thank you very much to Robert for coming on the show. Make sure you keep an eye on that TV show when it's out in a little while. Uh, also, thank you to Jacob Sanix for supporting the show this week. You can pick up his brilliant historical fantasy series, The Return of King Arthur, on Amazon or by getting to Jacob's website, jacobsanix.com. We'll be back pretty soon with a brand new author on the podcast, and I promise come September we'll get into the regular routine of every Friday. It's just things have been a bit all over the place recently. You can always support the show, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Drop us a follow on Twitter. We are at writers pod there and you can get in touch by using the contact page at writersroutine.com. and I will see you soon. Until then, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.